Welcome back to Stream Again, the podcast where we like to take a exciting new TV and streaming series and then take it hostage in the basements of our one-room apartments and then watch them. It's so exciting. I am your serial killer, Chris Barlow, and I am joined across the internet by the very intelligent, wise therapist locked in my personal basement, Diane Nora. Diane, how's that chain on your ankle treating you today? I'm not loving the chains, Chris, though I think that, you know, time will reveal I have some dark secrets of my own. So uh, don't we all? Uh, don't we all? And, you know, if you, dear listener, have some dark secrets of your own, you might be excited for the show we're going to review this week. It is a new drama, FX on Hulu. My favorite phrase to say, FX on Hulu. It's The Patient, from two of my absolute favorite uh, TV creators of the like last 10 years. So I actually Agreed. am super excited to talk about this. It stars Steve Carell and Donald, Donald? Gleason. You did it, Donald Gleason. Yes! We will talk about the pronunciation of his name and so much more a little later in this episode. And then after that, we're going to do our long-promised rewind review of Peacock's The Resort. The mystery has concluded, and I have feelings. Do you, Diane? I sure do. I'm really excited to talk about both of these shows. Your tone is so mysterious. I don't know if you liked the finale or you didn't. I can't wait to find out. And don't worry, there will be plenty of spoiler alerts before then. So stay tuned with us. Have a seat. Join us as we will. But first, we're going to get to some follow-up. And uh, follow-up this week begins with a little check-in at a little company that we've been talking about a lot. Yes, we're checking in with HBO and HBO Max. And this week, get ready, because this news is going to throw you for a loop. I am here to report that there is an animated series that is Batman-adjacent that has been renewed on HBO Max. What? Wonderful news. It is great Harley news. Quinn coming back for season four. Uh, it's exciting. I personally have not had the time to watch Harley Quinn, but I have uh, soaked up a lot of the critical praise, and it sounds really good. I now that it is renewed, this is a, a good as good. This is as good an excuse as any to go check it out. I have only seen uh, parts of episodes out of order, so I've never like sat down and watched like properly streamed it but it's great the cast is really good um and sarah peters who's going to be the new showrunner uh is a nathan for you alum and we love nathan fielder content I didn't know here that. at stream mm -hmm. yeah wow. yes yeah, she's got a lot of great writing credits um and she she's going to be the new showrunner for the new season so yay wow. sarah peters Wow. If you don't know, this is an animated adult series uh, that envisions Harley Quinn, who you might know as kind of a spinoff of the Joker and that edge of the DC Batman universe. Harley Quinn forms her own villain gang and starts up a romantic relationship with Poison Ivy. And so a lot of the praise for the show has to do with just this really... Um, I want to say realistic, but it is a cartoon set in the Batman universe, but realistic depiction of a lesbian relationship in a superhero show, which is completely unheard of. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of fun. It's a funny show. Definitely for adults. Yes, yes. And that is its saving grace on HBO Max, because as we have covered here, if you are a child, you are dead to them. <laughs> but speaking of dead children... 
House of the Dragon. I don't know if there were any dead children in this week's episode. That's not a spoiler. I have not watched yet. But it feels like the right pivot to talk about a Game of Thrones show. Sure. Uh, I do not have much to say this week. And like I said, no spoilers. We are not caught up. But uh, I just love this little detail. HBO has put the uh, premiere of House of the Dragon, which we did review on this very podcast, uh, it's up on YouTube. So if you listened to that episode and thought, boy, I'd like to watch that, but I don't really want to for some reason, now there's another way you can watch it for free. As uh, the AV Club pointed out, this may be part of a move to undermine Amazon's success because Amazon is going to, or has just released uh, Lord of the Rings, The Ring of Power, rings the, and the rings, rings of things. The rings of power. There are multiple rings, I'm told. And that is as good an excuse as any to get to some new news. We are moving fast this week because we do keep an eye on the time. And uh, the ring of power, the rings of power, the many rings that are lordly and powerful, that is the subject of our first news story. Amazon has launched its long-awaited Lord of the Rings prequel spin-off series, the most expensive television show ever. $715 million to make this show, according to the Wall Street Journal, which is just... An obscene amount of money for any television show. That does include the cost to get the rights from the Tolkien estate to to do the show, but that's not the majority of the cost, I don't think. If you have watched even 10 seconds of this show, you can immediately see how they spent hundreds of millions of dollars on the production. Wow. I I haven't seen it yet. I'm looking forward to watching it, Uh, and we will be reviewing it. Yes, very exciting news. There are two episodes that dropped in the initial release, which I think was a smart move on Amazon's part. And we will be reviewing the first three episodes total for next week's episode. So if you want to get caught up with us, watch the first three episodes of The Lord of the Rings, colon, The Rings of Power on Amazon Prime Video. And if you do tune in, rest assured... You are not alone, because Amazon would like you to know that this is their most successful premiere to date, with over 25 million viewers. And the Wall Street Journal would like to point out that that is the first time Amazon has ever given us a numerical value for viewership on any streaming series. So yes, that seems like a large number, seems successful. There's zero context for it, though, so cool. It's interesting that that 25 million is also the number that HBO was just under from its first week of House of the Dragon, if you remember. So I think that obviously these shows are in competition with each other. So it'll be interesting to see as they go through their seasons, how many folks are still watching them. Yeah, this is the showdown of the fall. The matchup of the TV season is House of the Dragon versus Lord of the Rings, colon. I'm sorry, I should do the full titles for each. Game of Thrones, colon, the House of the Dragon, and the Lord of the Rings, colon, the Rings of Power. It's a big season for colons. (laughs) And not just the kind that get disemboweled on House of the Dragon. Oh boy, I'm excited to watch. Me too, me too. And again, more on Lord of the Rings next week. But before we move on, there is one other detail from the Lord of the Rings launch that caught the internet by surprise. And I actually think it's worth taking a moment for. Uh, Amazon has quietly added a new 
uh, reviewing process to their viewer reviews. And this is where the English language fails us because we're using the word review too much. But you know, if you go to Amazon Prime Video, you can rate the show you watched. You can leave a review as the viewer of the show. However, if you've ever been on the internet, you might know that a lot of people on the internet are racist, sexist, misogynist trolls. And so those people have been review bombing the Lord of the Rings because the Lord of the Rings has, um, well, a female protagonist and black people, which some people think should never be within a thousand miles of the Lord of the Rings. And I will say, having watched the pilot, the black people are really necessary to get over the huge master race vibes that the elves give off. And that is something that really can strike you as uncomfortable if you're not totally into the Tolkien universe to begin with. It is, it is a very Aryan-leaning universe to an outsider. However, oh however, I will say... Uh, Lord of the Rings does a great job kind of addressing some of that concern in the pilot by introducing some exciting non-Aryan-looking characters. And that's a good move. Unless you are one of those racist, bigoted trolls that loves to hang out on the internet and leave comments. And so in order to protect the the literal like five-star rating of Lord of the Rings, Amazon has introduced a new 72-hour review process where they will have a system in place to weed out reviews that seem to be from bots and trolls. And it turns out they did not add this just for Lord of the Rings. They actually introduced it after the premiere of A League of Their Own last month. Because guess what? Those those same trolls do not like a series about empowering women and racial diversity in the Greatest Generation era. Shocker. Shocker. Oh, I think this is actually a good move by Amazon, which is something I'm not quick to say, particularly as we're recording this on Labor Day. But uh, without giving too much props to Jeff Bezos, I think, you know, this also protects your creators and your artists from reading, you know, horrendously racist or sexist, you know, transphobic, homophobic things. So um, I think more of this, please. Uh, seems like a good I agree. And I would also just say, I don't know why they have this review system for Amazon Prime Video to begin with. You cannot leave a review for a show on Netflix. You can just tell the algorithm if you liked it or not, so that in theory, mm-hmm. they will feed you more things you like. I really do not understand why they even have this review system for Prime Video shows, except that it's Amazon and they have a review system for the diapers you buy. And that they just, they think, well, diapers and Lord of the Rings, people can review them both. It's an interesting system. I I do think this delay is a good call for their own products and for their artists. Absolutely. And we do have one more thing we want to talk about in the world of Amazon Prime Video. Because, you know, we just mentioned that Amazon Prime Video has launched the most expensive TV show in history with Lord of the Rings. Uh, But who is going to launch the second most expensive TV show in history? Any guesses, Diane? Oh, is this another Jeff project? You know, it might be Amazon Prime Video, because when you have that much money, what 
does it matter? Uh, this is some juicy Hollywood reporter gossip that came out last week about Citadel, which is a show described as a global event series, which is my favorite like network mumbo jumbo. That's something I would ex- I would not be surprised to hear NBC describe an America's Got Talent finale as a global event series. So to hear Amazon call what's supposed to be like a high octane spy thriller from the Russo brothers a global event series, that already makes me concerned for the prospects of this show. I'm a little concerned too, particularly after the Gray Man sort of fizzling out. Though, you know, the Gray Man is going to be a Netflix franchise, supposedly, so perhaps it will find its audience in later iterations. And the Russo brothers, you know, directed a bunch of Arrested Development. They've done, you know, the Avengers were a huge success, so they might still have a few tricks up their sleeves. Amazon sure seems to think so, because the drama here had to do with some creative differences between the Russo brothers and the writers on the series, which included Andre Nemec, who uh, you may know from other TV credits. Uh, It seems like the Russo brothers were really distracted making The Gray Man, and so they kind of lost, they took their eye off the ball at Citadel, and then the writers led by Andre Nemec and company, made their own cut of the series. And then Amazon had to choose between two competing visions, having already filmed the series. They had already spent $160 million. Now they're editing two different versions of it, and Amazon had to pick one direction. And they they went with the Russos, which is probably the safe move from a business sense, especially because apparently Citadel is the beginning of, yes, a franchise. So now they're spending up to $75 million for reshoots. So it will cost over $200 million, which is nothing compared to the $715 million we just discussed. But boy, that is a lot of money to spend on something that I don't even know what it is because all they'll call it is a global event series. Yeah, that's um, a big gamble on something that isn't existing IP. In a way, I find that very exciting, though. Well, that's the thing. That's why it's news, because it sure is interesting. And you know what else is interesting? A little network called The CW. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, no, Chris, that's not interesting. (laughs) But bear with me, it is. And come on, The CW, it's interesting. It's the network that gave us Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, Jane the Virgin, Riverdale, for better and for worse, and the entire Arrowverse, which is the part of the DC Comics universe that people actually watch and that Discovery is going to make sure we forget about. But it has been successful. And in particular, uh, they've been really successful making this kind of middle-tier content that has been really popular on Netflix and streaming, which is why I want to talk about The CW for a minute, because guess what? The CW is a relic of the 1.0 streaming era, and I think it's worth taking a moment to kind of acknowledge what's going on there, because last month, in August, The CW completed a a change of ownership, a changing of the guard, if you will, to a new owner named Nexstar, and Nexstar is pivoting hard. What are they pivoting to? They're pivoting to what every single network remaining is pivoted to already. Old people. (laughs) 
It's very exciting. The CW, I listed a bunch of youthful shows like Riverdale. That's their brand in most minds. But the new owners would like you to know that the average CW viewer is 58 years old, enjoys uh, crime procedurals, multicam sitcoms, and syndicated shows, including reruns of crime procedurals and multicam sitcoms. That's the new ownership at the CW. I share the tastes of many 58-year-olds and enjoy a good crime procedural and even a good multicam sitcom. So I'm not too heartbroken about this news. Uh, No, me neither. I think, again, it says a lot about what's going on in streaming. Because if you are mm -hmm. not aware, CW stood for CBS Warner Brothers. Because who owned the CW until last month? CBS and Warner Brothers. And I just want you to think about those two brands for a second and think about what changes they've gone through in the last couple of years. The CW began when neither of these companies had streaming services. And in fact, both of the companies were owned by different companies at the time. CBS has since re-merged with Viacom and rebranded as everyone's favorite Paramount. Paramount Plus, that's your favorite mm. Paramount, right? And then... HBO, need I say anything more about HBO and HBO Max on this podcast right now? <laughs> this could be a successful pivot. I think it will be a successful pivot for the television network CW. What it will not do is continue the CW streak of generating really buzzy streaming shows. Because the, the cycle that the CW excelled at, and this is what I mean when I say streaming mm. 1.0, they created broad appeal, youth appealing shows like Jane the Virgin, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, Riverdale. They were willing to kind of experiment with weird genre choices or niche audiences that would not necessarily get a green light at ABC, NBC, CBS. But they could get a green light at the CW. CW didn't have a streaming arm. They did have a weird app, and for a while you could stream a lot of those shows for free on their app, which was a smart move. But they found their real success by licensing the back seasons to Netflix. And Riverdale, in particular, became a phenomenon thanks to Netflix. However, as we all know, that is a bygone era of Netflix. The, the licensing your library era is coming to a close, and now everyone wants to own their own streaming service and own their own content. And that put the CW in a weird position, because if you're co-owned by Warner Brothers and CBS... Well, they both have their own streaming games, and they are not interested in inventing a third shared one for the CW. So they sold out to Nexstar. And Nexstar is going to pivot the CW back to being a network of television over the air. And to do that, you do bulk up your, your lineup with crime procedurals and syndicated stuff. That's how you do that. The plan there from Nexstar is to actually make the CW profitable, because there is the, the you know, obvious twist in the story. The CW is a money loser, which is why Warner Brothers and CBS were happy to offload that debt to someone else. And uh, while we might be coming from the streaming perspective and think, yeah, everyone loses money in streaming, whatever, uh, no, that is not how network television works. Network television is still technically supposed to be profitable. And so Nexstar has a plan to make the CW profitable by 2025. That definitely will not involve spending a lot of money on streaming. No. I wonder if any of these streamers will try to move in and grab more of that youth market. Um, you know, I could see Netflix and Disney Plus both making a, a play for that. 
Yeah, it opens up an opportunity for sure. And it opens up an opportunity for creators because Nexstar would like to put a nice face on this pivot. They do not want you to think that they are turning into... Um, you know, Ion TV, that's a network mm-hmm. that I see sometimes that airs a lot of Criminal Minds reruns. Uh, no, they want you to know that they still will make the kind of shows the CW used to make, but they will also make other shows. And so their company line is, we still want people pitching us the next Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, the next Riverdale, but we also want people pitching us things they never would have pitched to the CW before because it was too old. And their example that they're holding up, at least their their first kind of big green light, is a, uh, I'm going to just read my notes here because I don't want to get the details wrong. It is a show from crazy ex-girlfriend creator Rachel Bloom, she's the executive producer on it, that is a period drama about suffragist vigilantes in 1909 New York. Sign me up. I know. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I yes, that does not sound... Funny, haha, like crazy ex-girlfriend. That sounds badass. Yeah, it sounds really fun. Um, and it doesn't sound like a traditional CW show necessarily. So there you go. Uh, widening the audience. Here's hoping. And of course, if we hear about some more exciting series coming to the CW, we'll let you know. And then when we find out, where will these eventually stream? Because there's money left on the table if you do not sell the streaming rights to someone. So the second question, once they beef up their schedule again, is where will they license the shows to stream to? Because again, I doubt they're interested in spending the money on launching their own streaming component. They are interested in just making money the good old-fashioned way. Please don't make me buy another streaming subscription. Fantastic news. Yeah, right? And you know, speaking of fantastic news, let's get to some bad news, which is fantastic in its (laughs) own way, while we check in with another network-turned-streamer-turned-network that kind of has a streaming component. Yes, we're checking in with NBC and or Peacock. What are they, and are they just going to become the same thing at some point? Before we get to that part, let's talk about Saturday Night Live. It's the fall. We're all excited for the return of SNL season 48 coming any week now, but not in the calendar month of September. I googled it in October at the earliest. This week, or last week by the time you hear this, we learned that three more cast members will not be returning for season 48. Uh, And I'm surprised by two of them. Agreed. Uh, So one of them is Aristotle Atari, who hardly got any screen time at all this season. So I don't think anyone was surprised by that move, though hopefully Aristotle finds some great new projects. Um, But then also leaving are Melissa Villasenor and Alex Moffat, uh, who were both, you know, pretty regular appearances. I think that they could have used Melissa more. Yeah. That's the one I'm really disappointed about because, uh, in case you've forgotten, at the end of season 47, Kate McKinnon, A.D. Bryant, Kyle Moody, and Pete Davidson all announced their departures. And I love Kate and A.D. Do not take this as any shade on Kate and A.D. But one of my silver linings from their departure was that it would give them an opportunity to elevate some of the amazing female cast members who have been waiting in the wings for way too Mm -hmm. long. And Melissa Villasenor, kind of top of my list. I love her so much much and she never gets enough screen time 
completely agree. Really funny. Uh, and, you know, she posted on Twitter about how she was, like, excited to start some new projects. So hopefully she'll also, you know, maybe lead something where she can use more of her voice. Uh, but I, I am disappointed that we won't be seeing her on this season of SNL. I'm, I'm also disappointed to lose Alex Moffat, who... Uh, I will admit, when he joined the show, really blended in too much with a bunch of the young white guys who joined at the same time, like Alex Moffat, Mikey Day. Day. I had a hard time telling them apart for a while. Uh, Mm -hmm. And they, they, to their credit, have really grown into distinctive personalities and, and have invented some great characters. And in particular, Alex Moffat, the guy who just bought a boat. I, as soon as I read this headline, I immediately went, no, the guy who just bought a boat. I'm sure that can bring him back. I'm sure that Alex Moffat can drop by. But the, the just the knowledge that there will not be ample opportunities for the guy who just bought a boat to drop into Weekend Update, it had hurt my soul. Yeah, this is definitely going to be a big rebuilding year for Saturday Night Live with now seven cast members not returning. Um, and I hope that they use it as an opportunity to really diversify and get some exciting new voices in the room. We will find out. At some point in the coming weeks, they are real cagey about when the show's coming back right now, but clearly they are getting back to work and beginning that rebuilding process. You know where else they're rebuilding? Peacock. Because like I said, this is a segment about NBC and Peacock, and uh, we have some Peacock news. This is not the Peacockalypse that we talked about last week. That is still coming uh, when Saturday Night Live returns. Do not go looking for those episodes on Hulu. You will find them on Peacock. But you know what you will not find on Peacock? A new season of Rutherford Falls, the Ed Helms-helmed show that I actually really enjoyed in particular, the second season. And so it is a shame that I think once the show started to find its groove, it got cut short. It is a shame. I think that uh, the strategy with this show was not very successful in, in terms of how it was released. Um, there was an option when Peacock was new to watch a few episodes of Rutherford Falls for free. And then they were hoping that that would get folks to pay for Peacock. But I don't think that ever really worked. I think people were just like, no, lazy, cheap people like me were like, well, there's so much other content I'm paying for. Oh, I'm right there with you. I had the same experience with Saved by the Bell and Rutherford Falls. I also watched that. But the one that stuck in my mind, they did the same thing with the Saved by the Bell reboot. And the first three episodes were funny. But they weren't funny enough for me to pay to watch more of them. Had they dropped the whole season, I might have then been encouraged to pay to watch other things on Peacock, or I might have been encouraged to pay to watch season two of Saved by the Bell. And the same thing with Rutherford Falls, which in particular doesn't have the funniest pilot. Rutherford Falls is kind of conceptually a very interesting show, but conceptual comedy takes a little while to get started. And I think only putting the first three episodes of that on Peacock for free was a really big mistake because you need the full first season to get a satisfying character journey there and to be set up to want to watch these characters week to week because part of the setup of the show is not liking Ed Helms for a while. And you have to kind of go on his redemption arc. And if you can't, 
uh, what bad marketing to say here is this hilarious comedy uh, icon Ed Helms who you love from other NBC sitcoms come watch him be so funny on this sitcom oh but we're only going to let you see the episodes where he's not funny no and he seems like he was kind of racist too in the, his character in those episodes that's which part is... of his redemption arc is is realizing his white privilege and and interrogating who he is and why he takes such you know pride in his family history and that is all really juicy interesting american topics uh to plumb in a comedy i i deeply deeply respect the concept that they laid out here I do not respect the uh, bucketing it with just sitcoms in general that Peacock did. Mm. They just went, it's another sitcom. Toss three episodes out, people laugh, then they'll sign up. And it's like, no, it's not that kind of show, guys. Same thing with The Resort, which we are about to talk more about in a little bit. Uh, As we mentioned last week, they put one episode of The Resort on NBC to watch for free after America's Got Talent. And and that is another show where I'm like, read the room. It's not a ha-ha, yuck-yuck, multicam comedy where one episode can hook somebody. It's a, a conceptual journey that you are going to need to give people many episodes to get into. And if you just toss one or two at them and go, you get it, right? No, no, they don't get it. You should not be surprised when that does not work out for you. Well, I think that we're also in an era of peak television. There is so much content, though, that if a show isn't good after two or three episodes, which I don't think is the case with The Resort, but for me was the case for Rutherford Falls, there's just other demands on my time. Yeah, yeah. And Um, I will say this cancellation makes me very worried for shows like The Resort on Peacock, where I just wonder what numbers are they looking at? Do they really understand what they have in in their lineup right now? And maybe do they understand that they've maybe stacked a lineup that was a little too experimental for their brand? And are they going to pivot back towards what NBC does best, let's say, or is known for, which is more broad comedy and Dick Wolf procedurals? We'll keep watching it. Sometimes it seems like the people releasing things at Peacock haven't actually watched their shows. Yeah, I get that vibe from Peacock a lot. I get that vibe from Netflix a lot. I get that vibe in the streaming universe a lot. But speaking of watching shows, do you know who's been watching a lot of shows lately? Emmy voters! Yes, it's Emmy season! Uh, The Emmy Awards, the primetime Emmy Awards, they are coming up on NBC and, yes, streaming on Peacock, Monday, September 12th at 8 p.m. Eastern. You might be asking yourself, Chris, Diane, why on a Monday? Why should I watch the Emmys on a Monday? Well, the answer is uh, pretty simple. Diane, what's the answer? Uh, Sunday night is busy with football. Football! NBC has football. And do you know what people actually watch? Live sports. Do you know what Mm -hmm. people say they're going to watch but don't actually watch? Live award shows. Oh, I watch them, so I'm excited. What an exciting Uh, Monday night. (laughs) Two years ago, they had their lowest viewership ever in 2020. Last year, there was a small rebound. So hopefully this year we'll see uh, a bit of growth in the numbers. I hope as someone who wants the Emmys to continue to be 
televised. I hope I would not get my expectations up for this Monday night telecast, but you never know. You never know. Uh, We are not going to do a big Emmys episode or anything like that. By the time the Emmys air and we record and then we release the episode, our hot takes will be colder than the frozen dinner that I will be enjoying at 8 p.m. on Monday night. But uh, we do want to highlight a few things that you might look out for if you're going to watch the Emmys on the 12th and a few interesting reveals that came out of the Creative Arts Awards, which is the creative title for the Emmys that they give out a week in advance so that they don't take up any time during the telecast. You know, if you're like me, you might associate the Creative Arts Emmys with the Technical Awards. And the technical awards are extremely important. That is not a snub on them whatsoever. But what you might not realize is that they give out a lot of writing and directing awards at the Creative Arts Emmys now, especially for some really interesting categories. And they give out one of my favorite awards that I really think deserves more primetime recognition, and that is Best Casting. Because especially with a new show, the cast is everything. And the Best Casting Award winners often wind up winning the best series in their genre. So this year, we're paying very close attention to the winners of the Best Casting Emmys. Succession, Best Drama. Abbott Elementary, Best Comedy, yes! And The White Lotus, which we all know is going to just mop the floor of the Best Limited Series category. It's not even funny. Though the show is. I love all three of these shows, and I'm happy to see them acknowledged, and I completely agree. The right casting can make or break a TV show. Absolutely. So I'm really excited to see how those do in their respective categories. Uh, One more very interesting possibility that came up uh, is in the variety and sketch show category that we now mostly refer to as variety series category. And that's one where, um, for the writing award... It goes to Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, like, every year. And then the Best uh, Variety Series Award goes to Last Week Tonight with John Oliver every year. They have won six straight years in a row for Best Variety Series. They clean up. Mm. However, the directing category has a lot more variety. No pun intended. Well, maybe a little pun intended. Uh, yeah. The the typical winner is uh, Saturday Night Live. They've won five years in a row, and they've won 10 times since 2010. So that's a lot of Best Directing Awards for Saturday Night Live in the category. This year, though, the Best Directing Variety Series Emmy went to Bridget Stokes for a Black Lady sketch show on HBO. And I am super jazzed about that because that show is uh, deeply underrated, I think, especially in this category where it's mostly going up against late night news and talk. There are just Mm. so few good, innovative, and thriving sketch shows on TV, especially because Saturday Night Live is live for the most part, and that is its own genre. They're just the era of, like, good pre-recorded sketch comedy. It's It's been a while. And a Black Lady sketch show has really been, like, kind of keeping the flame alive. So I am thrilled that there's even a sliver of a chance that they might walk home with the Best Variety Series trophy. Yeah, I'm absolutely rooting for them. I am too. And we have one more little Creative Arts Emmy we wanted to touch on because it's near and dear to our hearts. Mr. Nathan Lane taking home the Best Guest Star in a Comedy Emmy. And this is great because he now holds the record for most nominations for Best Guest Star 
in a comedy series, which is a, a record previously held by Fred Willard. So he is in beautifully, beautifully good company. Uh, I'm just thrilled he won for season one of Only Murders. And to be clear, he won for season one of Only Murders. He could get nominated again for season two. And while his role in season two was a lot smaller, his excellence in that character was no less. I loved the choices they made for him in season two. Absolutely. Yeah, he's fantastic on this show. I love watching Teddy, uh, his scenes with his son in, in season one were especially beautiful. Um, so I'm, I'm really glad to see him acknowledged. Uh, pop quiz, Diane, can you name the four other shows that uh, Nathan Lane has received guest actor Emmy nominations for? And I will give you a hint. One of them is not a comedy. So I read this when I was reading the coverage of it. But I'm okay. Uh, Modern Family was one for sure, right? Yes, and he's been nominated um, three times for that. Wow. Not uh, about you, I think. Um, was it Frasier? Yes. And I the love Frasier. The and drama. What's the, the drama? Is it the Good Wife or the Good Fight? Yes, it's the Good Wife. It's the Good, it's wife. good wife. Nice, nice, nice. Uh, I we I love the Kings. I, I yes, and th- that's a good list of shows to be an amazing guest star on, and also Mad About You, but fantastic <laughs> list of shows. And gr- truly, I just love Nathan Lane, and I love his star turn on Only Murders. One of the best casting choices in a show full of so many good casting choices. Completely agree. Okay, we've talked a bit about the Emmys, and if there's anything especially dramatic, any physical assaults during the ceremony, well, we'll recap that when it feels appropriate. But more likely, we're going to let the Emmys be the Emmys, and we are going to focus on what we do here and best, which is talking about the shows themselves, and that means it's time for this week's review. And this week, we reviewed a new series from FX on Hulu. Again, my favorite phrase, FX on Hulu. We watched it on Hulu, where you can watch it too. It's The Patient. We're going to be reviewing the first two episodes, so spoiler alert for those. Uh, Diane, what do you think about FX's The Patient on Hulu? I'm really, really excited. I had very high expectations uh, because, like you, I'm a huge fan of the Americans. Um, yeah, we uh, should say that... the creators of The Patient are the creators of FX's The Americans, which is, I'm going to just say it, the best television drama of its era. I think that's a fair statement. It has my favorite ever series finale. Truly, one of the actual like textbook best series finales of all time. So the creators of that show, Joel Fields and Joseph Weisberg, created The Patient and also wrote every episode, which is really exciting for me. And they brought along some Americans alums to direct as well. So uh, no surprise that it was extremely intense viewing. Yeah. Um, and each episode so far is 22 minutes of, of pure drama. This is not a mm-hmm. ha-ha funny. This is not like, oh, it's a black comedy. No, this is a, a thriller, a terrifying thriller, a psychological thriller. It is all of those things. And so it reminds me a lot of, you know, the Americans. But what if you removed, like, 80% of the characters 
and 90% of the plots, and you just had Philip and Elizabeth, or Philip and Stan Beeman, the the agent, the FBI Mm -hmm. agent across the street, if you just took two of the most intense characters with, with the most intense character relationship between them and just locked them in a room, if it's, it was just Stan Beeman and the male robot in oh, one room. Oh, I would watch every minute over and over again. You're getting me you're getting me a little hot and bothered here. Uh, the, the level of intensity and focus is what I'm getting at. It feels like they distilled mm-hmm. a lot of the tension that made the Americans so good into this like nitro cold brew version. And they've very judiciously served it in small servings because I, you know, I did watch both of the first two episodes, which when you add up 22 plus 22, that's about the length of a regular hour-long drama now. It's about the length of an episode of The Americans when you watch them back-to-back. But I took a big break between episode one and episode two, and I think that that's by design. Interesting. So just to give yourself a breather from the intensity of it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Understandable. I did not do that because I don't care about my mental health while I'm watching television. I watched one and then immediately watched the second one. And when it ended, I was like, oh, I don't know if I can wait a week. I don't know if I can only get 20 minutes a week. It's really interesting formally to make this a 22 minute drama, but I might have to wait until it's all out and then just binge it. If I can control myself that long. We'll see. That's I a think, big if. I think that's the big question. I, I don't know how it will feel rolling out only 22 minutes a week, week to week. And I'm, I'm really interested to find out how that feels because it is an unconventional format and then the most conventional release cycle. The only thing unconventional about the release structure is they dropped the first two episodes at once, which I think was really smart because the first episode... And, I, and, you know, again, spoilers for the story here. The first episode really just explains the setup of the show. So Steve Carell uh, plays Dr. Alan Strauss. He's a therapist or a psychologist of some kind. He, he's got a practice out of his home where he meets with a variety of patients. We get a little bit of a sizzle reel of that. And, and it's, again, really efficient in how they set up who he is. And, and we know we're going to get more flashbacks to his personal life because we see some of that in episode two. But the, the pilot really quickly gives me enough information to go the guy's middle-aged his wife is gone his children are gone he's lonely he just works all day out of his house it's very pretty but it's very sad and it's very boring and it doesn't seem like he's got a lot to do like all of that super clear really quickly and then donald donald gleason i'm gonna get his name right donald gleason shows up as a very sketchy looking man who wants to be a, a patient of dr strauss and you can sense this is not going to go well even without the cold open of the series which is uh, dr strauss waking up realizing he's chained to his bed in a mysterious place so you know we know something bad's gonna happen from the get-go uh but donald uh, does an amazing job being absolutely unsettling and by the end of the first episode he has abducted dr strauss because it turns out donald gleason's character is named sam and is a serial killer and he really does not want to be a serial killer he wants to be cured by dr strauss but he cannot reveal to dr strauss that his compulsion is to murder people because then dr strauss might report him to the police so simple solution abduct him keep him hostage until he cures you 
it's really a very strong concept and i don't think i've ever seen this idea before but as soon as i heard it i was like how isn't this a thing already it's such a good idea yeah it feels yeah. like I have I not seen this Harold Pinter play at some point. There, there's something about it where you're like, surely someone has had this idea because what it does really effectively is sticks two characters in a room together and forces them to uh, get over an insurmountable obstacle, which is that Dr. Strauss wants to leave and Sam is not going to let him leave. Right. And also it's unclear if the doctor, Alan, if he's safe like if Donald Gleason might turn and kill him too I mean that seems like a very real possibility absolutely and in the second episode we find out that there is an even bigger twist waiting for us at the end and this is where I do agree I had the sense of I cannot wait for the next episode but to me in a good way I cannot wait Mm -hmm. but I must uh it seems it seems that Alan and Sam may not be alone in this house in the woods where Sam has abducted uh, Alan, too. There's some noises coming from upstairs and and truly terrifying final scene of the second episode where Steve Carell is calling out upstairs like, hello, I can hear you. Can you hear me? And I'm like, no, you're in the serial killer's house. Don't call out. Don't say, can you hear me? Don't do it. Yeah, that that was very frightening. I think I watched it with one hand like half over my eyes to shield myself from scary Donal. But um, then we we hear someone coming down the stairs. You can't see who it is yet. It looks like they may be holding a crowbar or something. And then Alan says in this very kind of meek but warm voice, like, hello. Like, it seems like maybe he's speaking to... A, a child or someone who it doesn't seem like from his response that he's like challenging this person so i was curious about who it'll be and then the episode ended and i was like oh my god yeah <sighs> and I, I gotta say that hello was also kind of a punchline for me mm-hmm. it was it was funny uh in in a way that diffused some of that horrible tension where I, i'm sitting there thinking steve carell's character is going to get murdered and it's only the second episode and so that hello was was a release and and really made me appreciate one Steve Carell's career has evolved in such an interesting way where he is mm-hmm. so multi-talented and so good at these very scary dramatic roles but he's still funny and he still brings a levity when it's appropriate which is that kind of like complicated character study that you want out of a show like this where you're just going to be stuck with these two characters Yeah, as we were saying earlier, this is just such good casting and casting can make a show. Uh, I'm if the whole show were the two of them in a room, I would be on board. But they also give us some interesting stuff where we get a lot of glimpses of Steve Carell's character's life outside of it i think we're really getting into his state of mind and so you see him remembering his wife who it seems like recently died um he has some sort of estrangement or strained relationship with one of his sons um uh and it looks like judaism is also going to be a major theme of the show uh it seems like his son has maybe as an act of rebellion in his words um uh become orthodox that's what it seems like yeah yeah um so i i'm excited too to see where they take that thematically 
over the course of the season. Yeah, and we haven't even met the other major character that is promised to us from the show's cast list, which is Dr. Strauss's own therapist, played by David Allen Greer, who Fantastic. obviously we're going to meet through some kind of flashback situation uh, and or I think based on what I've read that it may be a situation where uh, he Dr. Strauss kind of meditates or imagines his own therapist as a coping mechanism. And no matter how that shakes out, that's a really interesting dynamic to add to this, again, very constrained setup. And David Allen Greer in a dramatic role is always very exciting to me. Oh, I completely agree. I wish I could get all three of them in the room. I hope that happens at some point. (laughs) Knowing the creators, Joe and Joel, I would not be surprised if they find a very clever, well-constructed way to have Steve Carell having conversations with both his imagined therapist and his real captor at the same time. That just feels straight out of their playbook. Absolutely. Um, And it doesn't seem out of place for what they're exploring thematically. So that's really exciting too, you know, just consistent and spooky and potentially very disturbing. I will say I could see this getting to some very dark places. Oh, definitely. And it's going to take it a while to get there. Cause as we said, they're rolling out one episode a week and there are 10 episodes because with a short runtime, they can kind of, break it out a bit more. And I am, at least at the outset, a big fan of this. Uh, we've talked a lot about shows with bloated runtimes on this very podcast. And I, I know there are many reasons that uh, series orders are a contractual arrangement that have a certain set number to them. But what's great about this is Joe and Joel had a vision of a story that they wanted to tell. And it seems like they broke it up into little pieces that each are kind of a beat of the story, mm-hmm. a movement of the story. And that there's a structure to this choice, not just, well, Hulu ordered 10, so we took the story and we mashed it into 10. Or in the case of, let's say, Netflix and Stranger Things, Netflix ordered this many episodes, but we really have like double that much story. What if some of the episodes were two and a half hours long? I don't like that. I want the structure and the story to work hand in hand. And and again, early days with the patient, but the promise is that this is a story where the structure is as much part of the storytelling as the story itself. I really appreciate that too. It feels very much like they're using the form of television as part of what inspired them to tell the story this way. It's not just that, oh, I have a great story to tell and this is my opportunity to do it. Um, which it has felt like that a lot lately with shows that seem like they're being made are a mini series instead of a TV movie for some reason. And they have like, you know, 90 minutes too much content. And, you know, we joked earlier about Peacock and Netflix. Maybe the executives don't watch the shows before they greenlight them or put them on the streaming service. But that is a running critique of some of the streamers, especially Netflix, is the at least impression people have that there's no editor involved in the process. No one there to help you cut the fat from the series, so to speak. And... Uh, you know, Joe and Joel are people who grew up essentially in networking cable where you have editors, absolutely have editors, and you must cut your runtime to fit the commercial breaks, and you must have act breaks that lead in and out of those commercial breaks. Like, they have the structure training that I think a lot of streaming series do not these days. I um, am excited about some of the 
little idiosyncrasies they've given the characters so far, too. I mean, obviously, it's a good broad setup, but um, I love that. So it seems like Donald's character is like obsessed with food. He seems to work as some for whatever municipality or state as some sort of uh, control board for like the health department for different restaurants. So he's always bringing Steve Carell these dinners and like, you know, just they sound fantastic, (laughs) but he's really detailed about the way that he describes the food that he's eating. It's a way to bring in sort of the rest of the world into this like little closed contained room yeah. i love that choice yeah i do it's too so fun. the pork buns in particular you start describing right. it and i'm like yeah the pork buns i wanted to taste the pork buns it also yeah it makes what could be a really drab setup um really like sensual in, a, in an exciting way yeah yeah actually even when steve carell is eating what looks like a pretty sad breakfast like scrambled mm-hmm. eggs and toast and like a styrofoam cup of coffee that scene there was something really visceral and intimate and sensual about eating the eggs and finishing the coffee absolutely just taking your time to watch actors make these tiny movements like steve carell trying to unlock his <laughs> to pick the lock on his chains with a plastic fork what's kind of funny and really devastating but i was completely captivated oh me too and when a piece of the fork breaks off in the lock and he realizes Mm -hmm. that that could implicate him him trying to shake the piece of the fork out of the the lock the, the both hilarious and terrifying at the same time uh I, I do want to comment on the food really quickly. I, everything we've said about the food is true. There is only one criticism I have, which is that in the first episode in particular, uh, Donald Gleason's giant styrofoam cup of Dunkin' Donuts coffee that he brings to his sessions with Dr. Strauss, so obviously empty. It drove me a little crazy. I could not get over the fact that it just it, it did not seem like there was any weight in that cup. And that is such a small thing. And for all I know, I could find out that that cup was full of coffee the whole time. But there was something about the way he handled his giant Dunkin' Donuts cup that made me go, that cup is empty and you're not sipping anything out of it. In a show yeah, I totally didn't notice that. I, I don't know. I, it really could be my bias towards watching actors drink. On uh, This does make me think of the rehearsal, because everything does. When we had some of the scenes where they were rehearsing in restaurants, and the extras <laughs> that he hired were just like, m- eating like pushing the food towards their mouth, but then putting it back. Uh, yeah, so maybe I'm a little biased towards assuming everything's fake in, in eating and drinking on screen, but I did find the coffee cup hard to deal with. Compared to the scene later where Steve Carell eats that breakfast, it felt g- grippingly real. Like, I could smell that food, and I could sense him chewing it in a very literal sense. Uh, and so most of that is actually to praise how detailed the show is. Yeah, I mean, I also wonder if there's something too with the way that Donal handles objects seems to be related to his um, whatever he's going through psychologically. And there's something about the coffee cup and the way he was gripping it very tightly. And then the way he would do other small things like um, fidget with the extra skin on his hands and stuff, just like like very small movements that... um, 
really seemed like a person in agony, but then with his face being like absolutely placid, it was really interesting. And I also love what he's doing vocally. It's just like very almost monotone, which might just be uh, Donald's Irish, might just be his American accent, but um, I love it. It really works. Yeah, overall, he's chilling and also interesting to see because he's an actor who you might recognize from like the last jedi he pops up in a potter yeah he pops up in a lot of places but uh he's not typically typecast in my experience he's a very versatile character actor yeah and he's done a a bunch of big like those big franchise movies and also like weird little indies so uh this is a, a cool spot for him i think if the show goes well it could be a great like career expander Well, that is what's going on on FX, on Hulu, on The Patient. And uh, the series, like we said, is going to be airing weekly through the end of October. So we are going to revisit this, but not until November, which is so far away. So in the meantime, check it out on Hulu. And if you've got some thoughts, you can share them with us, podcast at streamageddon.com. If you have any questions you want to ask us, we will address them when we revisit this show later this fall. Uh, But speaking of revisiting shows, it's time for us to revisit a show we have talked about many times so far on this podcast. (laughs) It is time to just, well, it's a show with a tagline. It's about time. So it's about time to talk about the resort. In case you've somehow missed this, The Resort is a series that aired on Peacock. You can stream it on Peacock. We have talked about Peacock so much this week and last, but here we are again talking about the end of The Resort. So this is a spoiler alert for all of season one of The Resort. Uh, Diane, what did you think of the end of this very strange mystery? I really loved it. I don't think it's a perfect show, but I just have such an affection for it. I love that it's not like any other television show that I've watched, even though it's a little bit like a lot of things. Yes, that's actually a great way to describe it. And one of the challenges I think they had marketing it, a lot of people compared it to The White Lotus when it came Mm -hmm. out, which is a terrible comparison that is not accurate at all. And a lot of people thought that it was a kind of goofy comedy, which is a terrible genre comparison. It's not that at all. But it does borrow from each of those things, which is a very interesting strategy, but very hard to market. It kind of reminds me of like a mystery box show like Lost, where you're sort of figuring out what the thing is. And it and it does. Absolutely. But also at the same time, by the end of it, I wasn't waiting. I wanted to know what would happen to everyone. But I didn't expect something like, oh, we're all in purgatory or something. And there is a very clear, you know, like little twist explanation and it doesn't really give that at the end you know it no you find out what happened to sam and violet but a lot of it is still in a sort of mystical realm Um, yeah the show embraces magic at the end it embraces the magical realism that it's hinted at many times throughout the season and i i think that's a really interesting comparison to where we were when we reviewed the first three episodes and listeners if you 
somehow forgot or haven't listened, that's in your feed. You can go back and listen to our impressions of the first three episodes of the show. I remember at the end of the third episode, I still thought we were going to kind of follow a realistic, hard-boiled mystery and that they had killed Balthazar. That's where our last review had ended. They had got, uh, broken into the old abandoned resort and seemingly killed Balthazar, who seemingly was guilty in some way of the disappearance of Sam and Violet. And none of those things came to pass. Balthazar, <laughs> very not dead, did not uh, have anything to do with the disappearance or murder of Sam and Violet. Sam and Violet, in fact, not even murdered. They've been in a pool in Pasaje for 15 years. And to them... Almost no time has passed. And that is the magic at the end of the show. The fact that they find them, and they find them alive and as if no time has passed. Which, again, the the tagline of the show, which I don't think they leaned into enough in the marketing, because it's on some posters but not others, is it's about time. Which is a cute double entendre, but the show is about time and how we deal with the effects of time, with time healing all wounds or not it it is a meditation on time and so the solution to the mystery has to do with being out of time that that fits thematically emotionally i found the the finale emotionally satisfying even if it answered very few questions i completely agree and i don't think that if they had given a neat solution it would have been satisfying no, they, you know. there's a moment in the season, not that far off from when we last reviewed it, uh, in episode four or five, where they realize <laughs> that Ben Sinclair's character, who is the owner... Alex, I think. Yeah, Alex, who is the owner of the resort that, that uh, gets hit by the hurricane and abandoned, he had been painting his memories into a giant mural in his room, and that up in the corner of his mural is seemingly our main couple, Christy Miliotti and William Jackson Harper up in the corner of a mural painted 15 years ago by a man who's been dead for 15 years. And so there was a moment there where they moved deliberately in the direction of magical realism. And from that moment on, if they had found a really scientifically pat way to explain everything that happened, I would have been disappointed. Once they made such a clear move towards there's something out of this world happening then you need to say, yes, the solution is out of this world. And that's that's great. That That is a choice. And I'm so glad that they didn't chicken out or that they didn't use that as a red herring and then come back to something really simple and, you know, or convoluted, but still, you know, realistic, for lack of a better word. I completely agree. I do think there might be some of the details of like the mystery that are there if you unpack them. Um, So I kind of want to watch again. It's not that long of a show. Um, Alex says some things about like uh, time escaping his body and stuff. And he would like pull on his ear and like, like, or like play with his ear and like water would come out. So I think that um, Sam does that again too in the finale after he's emerged from the water. So I wonder if there's something there um, to unpack. I I think that there are a few more concrete clues about the way that Pasaje works that I might be able to pick up if I watched it a second time. And maybe more astute viewers did the first time. Um, but Uh, I wouldn't mind doing that, too. I think that's kind of part of the fun of this world. Yeah. 
I, I would enjoy a rewatch with a little bit of time, I, I, so to speak, because mm-hmm. right away I, I, I had a good experience. I don't want to rewatch it and perhaps not enjoy it as much on the second viewing because so sure. much of a mystery like this was the uh, excitement and the enjoyment of not knowing what would happen next. And it did take so many interesting twists and turns, so many unexpected twists that I want to kind of live in that and enjoy that ride I went on. Uh, I especially enjoy that it ended not with Noah and Emma's story. That's that's William Jackson Harper and uh, Christian Miliotti. Um, it, it, you know, their story wraps up exactly the way I expected it to. She mm-hmm. finally confronts some of her trauma around losing her baby, and she is willing to be vulnerable with Noah. Noah is willing to support her more than he was at the beginning of the series, and that's it. There, there is actually nothing too revelatory about the arc that Noah and Emma go on, but it, to me, that's the right choice for them. And maybe it was a mistake to make them the anchors of the show in both a marketing sense and maybe a bit too leaning into them a bit too much in the pilot. But honestly, I think back in the pilot and it's split pretty 50-50 between them and between Sam and Violet. It really is a story about Sam and Violet and about Balthazar and Luna, the people at the resort who kind of string the mystery together across the two eras. And Emma and Noah are just the instigating uh, event that cause the mystery to be solved. And so, in a way, they serve their role perfectly because they are the normal people who have a a normal crisis in their relationship, and it's solved through this extraordinary experience. But their their journey is not extraordinary. Their journey is pretty ordinary in in a true-to-life way. Everything extraordinary is all the stuff that happens to Sam and Violet and Balthazar and Alex. That's the extraordinary story that they happen to stumble into. And Mm -hmm. and so the show ends with much more of a focus on uh, Violet and her relationship with her father, who is just a stellar performance by Nick Offerman. Because both very funny and very sad, and because he was so good at being very sad, when he gets to be reunited with her at the end, I was ready to cry, because I was so happy for him. I agreed. And then, the final image of the show is Balthazar and Luna seemingly going off on their next adventure. And that was such a sweet little cherry on top at the end of the series for me and gave me this ridiculous hope that we're going to get a season two and that the thing that holds the story together is Balthazar and Luna, that we're going to go all White Lotus on this where there's only one or two returning characters and a whole new cast of people dealing with a new adventure. And I, I do not think the show is performing well enough for my dreams to come true, but man, what a sweet feeling to leave on. I share that because I loved Balthazar and Luna. I will say I do think that Emma's arc, it, it, she is the protagonist. I, I I feel pretty strongly. And that, that her emotional decision at the end, she sees uh, Violet and Sam in the pool and could join them there. It seems that one of the things in the pool is that you see... The, the loved ones you've lost and we find out that she has chosen or that she had chosen previously not to see her her baby um who who passed away so she sees her baby um and violet gets to see her mom who passed away the fact that emma chooses to be among the living instead of to dwell for all that time in her grief in the pool 
I think is like the end of the emotional journey that she can only have because of the Balthazar and Luna and Alex and everyone she meets along the way. But I do think that like, it's still her story. I think that's a good point. I think you you make the right counterpoint to me feeling that the star of the show is really Balthazar. Uh, and to a lesser he's extent, so good. he's so good as part of it. And so unexpected. His character really surprises you over and over again. And while Luna's role is smaller, same thing. There's a part mm-hmm. in the story where you think she's going to be a villain. And then there's a part where you're not sure whose side she's on. And then at the end, you know so much about her and how she came to this uh, job and to know these people that you love her. And I really do want to go on another adventure with them. I guess what I'm really saying is I had a great time on this adventure adventure with Emma and Noah, but I don't want to go on another adventure with them. And I would have a hard time believing the setup for a series where they go on another wild adventure. But okay. I, I would absolutely believe that Balthazar and Luna are just off to the next crazy adventure, and I would watch them go on a hundred adventures. I would too. It's interesting that in their scenes together, when the other folks aren't around, they speak in Spanish, which makes sense. That's what they would do. The actors are both so, so fantastic. I don't know if Peacock is going to (laughs) green light a season of them speaking in Spanish. Uh, Don't do it. Peacock, do it, please. Do it. it. Yeah. HBO would do it. They have Losa Spookies coming back. Why can't Peacock make its own Losa Spookies play? Why not? Besides the fact that it's a company allergic to that kind of idea. But to give (laughs) Peacock some credit, they went out on a limb with the resort. It's a really experimental show. And I am so glad they did. As am I. Yeah, I I really like it. And, you know, I did want to touch on the tone as we wrap up because... Uh, We've talked about the marketing for the show many times at this point and how I think maybe that didn't serve the show very well. But so much of that has to do with what expectations do you have about a place like Peacock or NBC? And when you and I were talking before recording, we were pitching what streamer would the resort be right for? Where would the resort feel at home and maybe find a bigger, more ready audience and I think the answer is FX, and, and, and that means Hulu, but FX on Hulu. The, the show screams the kind of confidence of an FX series. I agree. And maybe, so season two, FX on Hulu, somebody give me season two. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I think that's probably where it's best suited. And I think that also speaks to what FX has done in terms of just giving really gifted creators leeway to see their vision through and also establish a really clear brand of like unique dramas with an edge. Yeah, and what's interesting about FX in particular is they have both comedies and dramas, mm-hmm. but you wouldn't, the resort, if it was on FX, you wouldn't lump it in with It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia and Archer. You would know it's not that kind of FX comedy. Their comedy brand is very comedy, and then their drama brand has a lot of leeway to be mystery, thriller, experimental, more straightforward. They, they have the breadth 
that Peacock doesn't, that Peacock must aspire to, or someone at Peacock aspires to, but it's it's hard when, you know, your audience doesn't already have that brand association. They don't know that that's the kind of brand that they're walking into. And FX has done such a good job of making it clear what kind of work you're going to get from FX, what kind of experience you're going to have, even though there's a, ro- a very wide range of programming there. Mm. Imagine if the lead into this show were instead of America's Got Talent for one night on NBC were The Bear or if it was Fargo. Fargo. All shows. Yes. All shows that would feel, you know, all different, but would feel thematically or just tonally in the same wheelhouse as this mystery. Agreed. Ah. Well, we can dream. And we can dream of a second season of The Resort. Because if they do greenlight it, you better believe we will review it right here on Streamageddon. If you, dear listener, have a show you think we should review or a show that we did review that you would like us to revisit in a rewind review, email us. Podcast at streamageddon.com. Or you can find us on Twitter. I'm at I am Chris Barlow. Diane is at Diane Nora. Diane with two N's. And then we will join you again in this feed next week, post-Emmys. We'll all binge. We'll have our frozen dinners and Mai Tais and 8 p.m. mimosas while we cheers to Keenan. Keenan, I just want to end by pointing out, Keenan hosting the Emmys this year, evidence that there are people capable of hosting the Emmys who are not white men. I just want to point that out. Someone at NBC looked further down the list of potential Emmy hosts than Jimmy and Seth. And much love to Seth. And Jimmy's also there. But there's been a long list of very available candidates to host the Emmys for quite a while. And it's really exciting to see them pick someone who is not a white man who hosts a late night show five nights a week. I agree. And I'm a big Keenan fan, so I I can't wait. Me too. Me too. And Keenan did not leave SNL this week. So we leave on a high note, everyone. (laughs) We all still have Keenan, and we all still have you. We all still have streaming. So keep streaming.